Caitlin, what's your earliest memory of the internet? My mom worked at a library and I was supposed to be helping her shelve books. And instead I was on the computer for three hours and I instant messaged with a guy or what I suppose was a guy (laughs) for three hours. And I was like, we're friends. Oh my gosh. Three hours. I wrote about it in my journal. What about you? Do you have a memory of your first internet dive? The first thing I did was search Paris restaurant. And that was the the thing on the other side of the world I wanted to find. And I remember finding one and looking at their menu. That's so consistent with who I know you to be. Yeah. It's actually kind of incredible. Oh, remember when the internet was fun? Now it's all robots watching you shop and people named Theobro34215 shouting at you. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York and trying to look up from our phones once in a while. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, It was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Did you see that recent... SNL skit uh, about attention deficit disorder and it was like just give me that short movie yeah ironically I didn't finish it because <laughs> it didn't hold my attention um I, I oh, saw another like you- seven minutes <laughs> I saw another YouTube video that I wanted to click on yeah but it it definitely captured I think what a lot of us have experienced yes. especially in the last two years especially since the pandemic that I have found it hard to sit in my apartment and watch a full movie from beginning to end without also checking my phone or surfing the internet or texting friends. And I used to be able to do that just fine. I used to watch movies regularly. And now it's like, it's so true. I stop movies all the time. I am looking at my phone and or my computer and watching it. It's like, I think the only time I've like really watched a movie and paid a lot of attention to it was when I went to a movie theater. Well, that is something that I have learned. Like, okay, if I really want to see a movie, I just need to invest in going to a theater where I have to turn off my phone. There's not Mm -hmm. another screen. People aren't talking. That's the only way that I will really get the most out of this movie. This is a bizarre conversation to me because I really love movies and I used to love watching them all the time. And I feel like now I'm like, oh, movie? No, I... I'll watch this TV show and then I'll watch like two or three hours of a TV show, which is sort of (laughs) somehow different. And it's not just with movies. I mean, I, I think I have like 45 tabs on my computer open right now. And a bunch of them are like articles I really want to read, but Mm -hmm. I get like two or three sentences or a paragraph or two in and then I click on to something else and, and then I forget and I don't go back to it. And I'm kind of embarrassed at how many like articles I've read, like one third of the article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that concerns me. I mean, especially given our jobs. <laughs> 
theoretically, like how important it is for both of us to understand what's going on in the world and really think deeply and broadly about current events and trends and things that are happening in the church. If someone were tracking my online activity (laughs) and saw that I typically scrolled like two thirds of the way through and then clicked away because I was like, I want to play my New York Times spelling bee again. It would be a little bit concerning. Like you might think, oh, she's not a smart person. She's a dumb dumb. Oh, I feel it too. I feel it too. And just the ability to like sit and deeply think about something. Mm -hmm. All of these things that I feel like are the person I want to be feel really challenged right now. Um, And it's not all technology like, but a big thing is like, I just feel like my phone is always grabbing my attention. There's just so much to get distracted by. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's easier to do that than to like Mm -hmm. really think. Even though it's also ultimately less satisfying, right? Like reading, reading a really good book Mm-hmm. And reading it from start to finish and thinking about it and sharing it with other people or talking about it with other people is actually more satisfying in the long term than like clicking in and out of Twitter and Instagram 30 times a day. But I keep doing that thing because it's some little hit of dopamine mm-hmm. and reading middle March. <laughs> the <laughs> dopamine doesn't come until later. And it's like a big time commitment. And in some yeah. ways, the, sh- the quick dopamine hit feels easier. I also just think I wonder how mental burnout, like even aside from technology plays into this, like what we have been sustaining for the last two plus years. Yeah. I mean, I think there've been consequences and yeah, the mental burnout of, of being alone a lot. Um, and so having to sort of entertain myself, but also like being anxious about the state of the world. And so dopamine was really helpful, Mm -hmm. um, and numbing and a coping mechanism, Um, and I also think like, I mean, I've been, I've talked about this with several people. You and I have probably talked about this. Like, I think that even as all of that was going on, I was at least at work, like being more productive than ever and having Mm -hmm. like, and I think people have been talking about this, you know, that, that actually like work expectations went up during the pandemic Mm -hmm. in a lot of industries because people could just be home and could just be sitting there and working. And so, I also feel like there's burnout there too of just this like constant push toward productivity and doing and doing and doing with Mm -hmm. which technology like sort of aids and abets, you know? Right. I mean, I think especially for people who are Enneagram threes Mm -hmm. or people who have Enneagram three wings, Mm. Uh (laughs) who in times of stress, you go more toward like doing, doing, doing instead mm-hmm. of being. Mm-hmm. And work was a source of what felt like security and stability. And at least I can do something during this right. terrible time. Right. But there are days when there are a lot of days when I get to the end where I'm like, I don't know what I did all day Yeah. besides look at my computer and type words. And I know that that is a nature of our work in part, but the the amount of time I'm spending in front of a screen, obviously mm-hmm. that f- there's something off about that, that I think we all know and we all intuit, but we don't know. We also don't know how to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even like the things, the words that I'm typing are necessarily like, you know, I mean, sometimes I sit back and I'm like, wow, I just wrote an article or like you wrote a book. Um, but a lot of times it's like, I wrote a Twitter post or I sent an email. Mm -hmm. I slacked a bunch (laughs) (laughs) on that note. 
Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's take five minutes and write down the five happiest memories that you have from like the last, like, let's say the last two weeks. Um, times when you felt really present and grounded. So not necessarily happy? Well, I think of them as similar. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't. No, I think, I think mine. Fulfilling. Yes, fulfilling. When you felt the best. When I felt most human. Ooh. Let us emerge from our happy memories. Mm. What did you write down? So I realized this is equivalent to the Christian answer, like Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the answer to everything. I did write down church. So did I. Yeah, just being with other Christians, being in a beautiful space, having a space to meditate, feeling connected to other people, receiving communion. It's really hard to do all of that virtually. And then last Sunday after church, I went out to brunch at a Mexican place, which always makes me happy with a friend. And it wasn't fancy. It wasn't like the conversation wasn't that memorable. Just going Mm -hmm. out and sharing a meal with somebody was really nice and still feels a little bit novel coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I wrote down (laughs) one of our mutual friends invited me to this slightly wacky show at Radio City Music Hall hosted by Josh Groban. The oh, like I saw that. I saw that on your Instagram. And I just, you know, she had an extra ticket. I was like, yeah, I love live music. I haven't been in a while. His voice is it sent chills mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into my brain. Then I wrote down going to this insanely difficult workout that basically kicked my butt. It was very intense. What kind of workout? It was African dance music. So imagine like Zumba, but no breaks and a very, very fast rhythm. Wow. (laughs) By the end, I I wanted to collapse. But then once you do something like that, Mm -hmm. the rush of like, I did it. Mm -hmm. Like, I Mm -hmm. feel like I can conquer the day, you know? And then finally, I wrote down FaceTiming with my nephew. He's at a very cute stage, and he calls me Kiki, and just makes me feel really good. Um, We usually FaceTime when we're both having breakfast on Saturday mornings. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So you did come up with five happy memories. I did. It took a little work. One was church, um, as I mentioned, and... It still feels really great to be back in church. I mean, it hasn't like the the novelty of that has not worn off yet um, of being able to be in church again. Um, and we've also been through Lent. We were doing like a Sunday school um, on uh, talking about climate change specifically, which is not a happy topic. Um, but that like going and doing that first and like being with people and like discussing these ideas. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then there was like a little bit of time in between church in between that and then church and like just kind of gathered in front of church outside and talking and like the spring weather and then going into church. And it's just like all of those things together was like, 
I'm part of something. I'm Mm -hmm. part of a community. It was really nice. Um, And then I recently went to a work conference, um, which it was the first time that all of us had gotten together and, you know, since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's all these journalists who work in religion. So um, it was kind of the same feeling of like just being part of something and having all like your people around you. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I did also a couple of weeks ago, I had a friend visiting from California and she was staying with me. We did like a long Sunday afternoon with her and a couple of other friends after church. And it was just like we wandered through Soho and we had brunch, of course, and then later like got cocktails. And then we had like a long lingering dinner and it was just great. Sounds fancy. It was fancy. It was very new. It felt very New York. Like this is like the fun yes. of living in New York, you know? Mm-hmm. And then running by the river, um, which I do pretty regularly. And um, this time of year, like, it's just beautiful. There's all these flowers emerging. And I love, like, I've started taking my dog with me more, um, which he can't go very far because he's not very big. But um, Mm -hmm. it's fun that they let you uh, have the dogs off leash until, like, 9 a.m. in Riverside. So he's off leash and he just like he loves to run and the look on his face when he's running it's like he just (laughs) has the biggest smile and it's so great it makes me so happy Mm -hmm. I think that was four I think the other one I uh last week I uh went to a restaurant down the road actually after we finished recording the podcast and it was late and I didn't have time to eat and so I was like just went and sat at the bar um and I'd been there you know I'd been there a handful of times but the bartender recognized me and Mm. Um, and she also like like knew almost everybody at the bar, and it was just one of those really fun times where mm. it was like, like it was like a Cheers episode or something, you know. And she was like introducing people at the bar to each other, and it was it was fun. It was cool. There is something about going to a place in your neighborhood and being recognized yeah. or being like, oh, it's you again, like. And I'm not saying that you can't find that in the suburbs, but I have found that much easier. Yes. Living in a neighborhood where you're walking to very specific locations mm-hmm. to get your needs met. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just nice to feel like they're so-and-so, you know. It is really nice because, you know, they see a ton of people every day and it feels good to be remembered and be like, oh, I'm a local. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to do that. That part was not really the thought experiment. That was the preamble to the thought experiment, Mm. Um, which we're going to come back to this after we talk to our guest, because I want to re-examine our five blissful memories through the lens of our conversation with Andy Crouch, which is coming up. Andy is the author of several books, most recently, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Bigger houses are not better for people. We need proximity. And if you have a big house, you should fill it with people, including people who are not your biological kin. Our conversation with Andy is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. All the news from the pews, if you choose. And if you like what we're doing at Save by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. One of our longtime listeners named Ed Stetzer. Hey, Ed. Said a very nice thing about us on Twitter. He said, Caitlin and Roxy are wicked smart. I don't know if Ed has a Boston accent, but that's how I heard it. He said, even when you don't agree, you learn. And that's a good thing. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. You can also email us at sbtcpodcasts at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you and we will reply. 
I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is Andy Crouch. Andy is the partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, an organization working at the intersection of faith and entrepreneurship. He's the author of several books, including his newest, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And he's also our friend. Both Caitlin and I have worked with Andy on multiple projects over the years, and he's a big part of the reason Caitlin and I are friends and also why we live in New York City. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you so much. Hey, Andy. It's good to be with you. It makes me so happy to get to talk to you guys today. This is great. Well, Andy, we have talked a lot on this show about the This Is Our City project as one of the major impetuses for both of us, really, in moving to New York. And of course, that project was one that you were leading um, at Christianity Today. And we wanted to start there. And we wondered if oh, you that's so cool. If you had any fun memories of that that you'd want to share, some a standout moment that you'd want to share with, with us. <laughs> oh, man, so many wonderful memories. But I will say, you know, so we had a, a team of about six of us or so, of which uh, the two of you were two. And it, it may be my favorite team ever. I shouldn't say that because pra- I work for Praxis now, and we have a great, great team. Uh, but I have to say, we... Obviously, we had a, had a lot of meals together, and I I remember Caitlin always finishing our meals. Oh, oh <laughs> a lot yes. of times where she's like, Caitlin... "Wait, are you gonna are you gonna finish that? <laughs> I'll I'll take it if you don't." <laughs> I still tell I tell people about this sometimes. <laughs> I really grew up with all my basic needs met. I don't know why psychologically it was like I. I want you to know you've been an influence on me because you have tremendously emboldened me to do that as well. I don't yeah. I don't do it with everything that's left. <laughs> I still remember you like consuming anything that was left. Um, <laughs> that's probably not true. But when I see something like fries, for example, I now feel the boldness of Caitlin Beatty to just go for it and say, hey, are you going to eat those fries? <laughs> that's so great. I wondered if you would talk a little bit about um, some of what we explored in Silicon Valley and which yes. was part of, you know, which was part of This Is Our City project. And I think one of the things that we came away from that time in that city was like the need for people who are working in the tech world to be asking these questions yeah. about yeah. the morality of technology and the world that they're shaping and that we need people thinking theologically and ethically and philosophically about these issues. Yes, exactly. And in fact, I had this amazing visit with someone I really admire, Sonny Vu. Uh, mm-hmm. Sonny's an amazing serial entrepreneur. I, I really love him and the work he does. Um, but I actually picked up an idea from him that I use in this book. I asked him what the underlying idea was and what was underneath that was so interesting. He said, we're trying to give people superpowers because people want superpowers. And that really struck me and has stuck with me. In the book, mm. I kind of push back on that. And I talk about mm-hmm. this experience I call the superpower zone, which is where you're getting all these benefits that technology offers and you're feeling very elated at like how much you can get done. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll give you email superpowers. We'll give you calendaring superpowers. We'll, 
<laughs> they're mm-hmm. they're all kind of it's sort of disappointing since it was supposed to be like flying through the air and you know <laughs> <laughs> if there's not a cape involved i'm not interested i need a literal cape for this to mean anything to me but please continue well so maybe caitlin you are immune to the appeal of your calendaring superpowers but I think for me, there is this zone I get into where I'm, you know, like there's this phrase pounding through email or mm. scrolling on Twitter or whatever. And I'm, I'm just absorbing so much information. I'm getting so much done. I'm sending so much out into the world and receiving so much from the world. And it creates this experience I call the superpower zone, which you you really don't want to leave it when you're kind of in that fugue mm-hmm. state. Um, and it's very close to this other thing that Mihai Six and Mihai calls flow, where you're just mm-hmm. full. This is the peak performance of athletes mm-hmm. and musicians and so forth. Where you're just deeply engaged with the world, and and all your skills are being sort of unleashed. And the superpower zone is like so close and so far from flow, mm-hmm. um, mm. and it's close mm-hmm. enough that it beguiles us and and entices us and then doesn't let go of us uh i actually i actually think the maybe the most interesting difference between the superpower zone and and the flow that one might experience like uh i don't know when you're working out or i experience when i'm on a bike uh people mm-hmm. experience it making music there's lots of different ways is how it ends yeah so i do a 20 mile bike ride every day that the weather's decent and when I end, I get off the bike and it's okay that I'm done. I mean, I'm sort of tired mm-hmm. for one thing, and I'm just ready to I'm ready to rest. I don't feel like I need to hold on to that experience, even though I've been deeply like pushing myself and all that. With the superpower zone, you I I almost feel like I never leave it willingly. I leave it because right. I'm called to dinner and I'm mad. I leave it because I have to go do something else and I can't get out of it. But so often I avoid leaving it even when I know I should. Mm. But that's what the superpower zone does. And and flow is so different because it's equally engaging. And yet you leave it just grateful, humble, not afraid, not holding on. Uh, but yeah. boy, would do we cling to that superpower experience. In many ways, this book feels you know less about technology and more about what it means to be a person um, and how how technology degrades that personhood, um, which you define in the book in part as a heart strength, body, mind complex designed for love. And you say that the superpowers, while they maybe make a task easy, they don't engage all of those aspects of our personhood. They almost always leave something behind, which is probably part of why it doesn't feel like flow that you're describing, which would engage like all of us. It seems like so much of our technology, and uh, I don't think it has to be this way, but it is this way, does not respect this sort of fourfold um, quality of human existence, heart, soul, mind, strength. And if we think of those as like four distinct but inseparable features of being human, like you're not a body without a brain, you're not a brain without a body, you're not a body without a soul. You're not a mind, you know, like you can do all the combinations. You're not mind without heart. You're not like pure intellect, but you're also not emotion without reason. In a healthy human person, they're all present. They're all being developed. They're all growing. And, and it's all oriented towards love. And what I think is, has gone so wrong with technology is that in order to get these superpowers and in order to get the kind of efficiencies and effectiveness that technology holds out before us, we are willing to just entirely set aside whole categories or whole facets of being human. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I feel like mm-hmm. we we just spend way too little time being all four. <laughs> so you've probably gotten this question. In the pandemic, mm-hmm. we very quickly turned to 
Zoom technology as if it were this brand new thing that we had never seen before (laughs) and got on Zoom with friends and family. What do you say to this sense that I think a lot of us have that, well, at least technology connects us in ways that we might not be able to otherwise? Totally. And I I think it's a really good question. Uh, And I I have thought about it a little bit. Um, So... First, I would say there's a there's clearly a spectrum of how t- uh, technology functions alongside our full humanity, and there's versions that really are very disembodied, very uh, uprooting, very you know, and very very addicting, all the way over to a spectrum. So in the book, I, I talk about this as devices versus instruments. An instrument being. It can be super high tech, but it's being used with fullness. It can even be used with all four heart, soul, mind, and strength, some kinds of instruments, mm-hmm. medical instruments, musical mm-hmm. instruments, surgical mm-hmm. instruments, right? Many days I play a piano, which is an industrial thing. It's not a mm-hmm. high technology, but I can right. play a, uh, you know, a digital piano, which is super high technology. But I, to do that well, I have to bring all of heart, soul, mind, and strength to it. And And the fact that I'm using technology does not take away that I'm I'm being invited into this allness, right? I think the same is true with Zoom, especially with people that we have established a relationship of love with. I think it's Mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. And I think that's Mm -hmm. because Zoom actually lends itself to some extent to being an instrument. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, it's not just a device. It's definitely not passive. You are invited to really attend to that other person. Mm -hmm. So the more it's like an instrument, the more I actually Mm -hmm. have no reservations. Because this is the sense in which I'm I'm truly not anti-technology. I just want mm-hmm. us to change what we're asking it to do, uh, mm-hmm. to be basically all instruments all the time. Um, you know, <laughs> we're we're using all kinds of technology to have this conversation, yeah. um, <laughs> and and I think it can lend itself if we bring heart, soul, mind, even strength in a way. I mean, we're sitting still to get good audio and so forth. Uh, like it can be really good. I will say though. If we hadn't had those dinners where Caitlin is like mm-hmm. stealing French fries off other people's plates, and we'd not been together and walked through cities together and mm-hmm. and sat in cramped vans with too much video equipment together, and you know, if we hadn't done that Im- that full embodied phase of being together, I don't know that we would come into this differently. I don't know what it would be yeah, like. Uh, yeah. I'm sure we could still have a informative conversation, but I don't think it would be the same. Um, and certainly, you know, we're here to discuss sort of subject matter, and you can do that without a whole lot of relationship and trust. Mm-hmm. Like the reason mm-hmm. Zoom works is you're building on these formative experiences you had for years and years where you were mm-hmm. together for better and for worse because it's it's messy mm-hmm. being human. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense as a way mm-hmm. of framing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like we, we dove in really fast um, into this topic. Um <laughs> And I wanted to just uh, maybe take a minute and zoom back out, which is to say, you already wrote a book about technology. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> which, you, uh, which you edited. Which Roxy I edited. Roxy was so. essential. That book would not exist without without Roxanne. Thank you. Um, why write another one? Like, why has this topic... <laughs> And this issue continued to keep you up at night, continued to be something that's that's that you feel like is something urgent you need to talk about with, you know, uh, particularly with Christians, maybe. I think this book tries to go a layer deeper. The TechWise family is built around very practical practices, mm-hmm. and, and I'm all for those things. But I wanted to get to go as deep as I could to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter are these... Um, 
it's this question of what it is to be a person, which is really abstract sounding. So like, could I write about that, but make it interesting to read rather than just philosophical musings on that? It's about where did what went wrong exactly in the big picture? Like, why are families struggling with this? Because I actually think we could have taken a set of decisions 100 years ago that would not lead to needing a book like The TechWise Family, because we mm. would have had a different kind of technology in our world that would have been better for people. So let's go back and retrace our steps. Um, and I, I also wanted to actually make the case that this is not the first time these kinds of issues have arisen um, because it was very intriguing to me. And I sort of wanted to, you know, write my, write out my, my intrigue, my hunch that the, the first Christian community came into being at a, in the midst of a technological empire, <laughs> mm. um, not in the sense of high tech or, you know, they didn't have electromagnetism and that kind of stuff, but the Roman empire was built on uh, tremendous advances in money Tremendous advances in engineering, and maybe you could also say tremendous advances in information, because they they had it, it conquered the whole uh, sort of world of the Greek world and then the Arab world, and they had all this explosion of information and, and thinking of a certain kind. Um, and it was so like our time, and it was also so lonely, like the Roman world for the median Roman um, person, male or female, was is just patently a terrible place to be human, hmm. um, even though it also, uh, at the top of this highly stratified world, were these amazing human beings like Marcus Aurelius or, or Cicero or whoever, um, you know, who get to live quite remarkable lives and write amazing literature. Um, and that also is so like our time. Like, this world that we share with seven or whatever it is, billion people, like the median experience, in spite of all this amazing stuff we have, it's not a good time to be a person. Hmm. So there's there were these parallels that I wanted to trace, Roxy, between, you know, in, in the, at a time also when the Roman Empire seemed to be doing great, like the 50s of the common era, AD, the 50s AD. Like, this was the time when everyone was like, wow, Augustus Caesar really was the son of God because he's brought peace to the whole realm. Uh, we have incredible prosperity. The grain boats arrive every every harvest time up the up the river to Rome. And isn't it an amazing time to be alive if you're a certain kind of person? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. That's so like our time. And right in the midst of that arises this community that has a totally different take on what it is to be human, what it is to be a person, who counts as a person. And they start rescuing people out of this impersonal world. And and that's why this book, though technology is kind of the middle part of it, ultimately it's, it's about something deeper uh, and broader than just tech. One of the things that you kind of keep coming back to in the book is this the relationship, is community. You know, you, you have this line that kind of cut me to the quick a little bit where you talk about how like one of the most seductive promises of technology of money is abundance without dependence. Yeah. And I think about that for myself, a lot of my friends in New York, like, you know, we pay to have things delivered to us. We pay to have movers come. Yeah. Our friends don't do it anymore. We pay <laughs> for a lot of services, you know, that like people who maybe have a larger family, they would help take care of those things. Yeah. So I think just as I thought about this, I thought about like the loneliness of living alone, but also I wonder how to challenge myself out of that mm. and what ways to make living alone not to somehow be part of still a community or a household in some way, yeah. if, if that's even possible. Oh, man. 
gosh, I I hope this sounds just entirely uh, non-judgmental. <laughs> that I, that's because it's so little of what I would feel would be a judgment. But what I would so hope for you and me and everyone in our Western world is to be re-embedded in not necessarily in a housing structure with a single entrance that multiple people enter in and out of. That's not the point I'm making. But for us to thrive as persons, we we need um, a kind of a, a kind of semi-continuous recognition of who we are that when we never when we don't have a space where we are interdependent all of our relationships have a have a veneer of transaction <laughs> it's not all there is to them because you're going to have real you know relationships for sure but there's something different about the the continuity of life in a household mm-hmm. um and the inescapability of it, because actually part of why I need is to be known not just at my best or when I'm ready to go on Zoom and have a conversation or when I go to work. I need to be known like in the times when I'm really sick or when I am withdrawing from the world and avoiding people because I'm depressed, which mm-hmm. I do. And my and because I have lived with children and and my wife they like it's inescapable after a while they figure out dad's not just sleepy right and um so the idea of the household is a community that's not based uh entirely or necessarily on family um per se Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that functions with a level of proximity that we can't help being known. I think in the book I say mm-hmm. we need a place where we can't where we cannot hide <laughs> and a place where we cannot get lost. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, so I'm married to Catherine for 27 years or so now and um, I'm very grateful for that relationship, but I would actually say one of the distresses of our lives is that it, it it's not enough even when you are married to another person. And actually, one of the great joys of our life, we're about to have a year in the city of Boston, back in a city. We live in a suburb right now, but we're going to be back in a city um, for Catherine's sabbatical, her academic sabbatical. And we're going to live in the first floor of a house owned by friends uh, who live upstairs. And Mm -hmm. their kids live with them. And their very, very aged mother, her aged mother lives with them. And we're going to be back in this household. And we cannot wait, like, to have Mm -hmm. that proximity. Now, we'll have our own space. You know, but we just need we need to hear somebody's footsteps upstairs and know, oh, that's Simon walking around. And we need Simon to hear me like practicing the piano and think, oh, man, he's got that wrong again. You know, and like so I think the trick in the city is even if you maintain your own like unit (laughs) Mm -hmm. to find ways to be bound close enough with some other people that you can't hide and you can't get lost. And I just think you're you're made for it. We're made for it. And I actually think to do that, you have to live relatively close by. Roxy and I talk. You do. We talk a lot about the fact that, of course, we have friends throughout the city and even during the pandemic have been able to get together, you know, once a month for brunch or drinks or whatever. And that's great. But it's real. the thing that I feel lacking Mm -hmm. is really the kind of multiple times a week. Hey, do you want to go on a walk? hey, I made some soup. Do you want some? I'm sick from the effects of 
<laughs> the vaccine. Can you go get me some Gatorade, yes. please? Oh, like, my gosh, mm-hmm. yes. And yeah. it's just unlikely that it, there's something about the physical proximity that allows for that, that mm-hmm. it's, it's just amazing that I can be, oh, I live in New York and so does Roxy, but it takes us an hour to see it's, each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, planning and. Yeah. yeah. I think and it then, almost always requires some kind of location, like relocation, mm-hmm. like choosing a neighborhood, moving in. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like an intervention to get me to move to the Upper West Side. It's all been like calculated. <laughs> like, Caitlin will listen to Andy if she... Anyway. Um, Which is also my favorite neighborhood in New York. And it's definitely where I would move if I were moving to New York. So I that must be okay, the spirit there you go. speaking. Yeah. I want to say, I think this, you know, part of why I hesitated for so long before I sort of said, I think you, you, each of you need this. I need it. We need it. Is yeah. it can sound like I'm like blaming you for being in, oh you independent you know single apartment dwellers. I actually right. think a huge part of the blame rests on the people who do have homes that are large enough mm-hmm. to to host a community, and and especially people who are married. And people who are married sometimes act like they've won the relationship lottery, yeah. and they they now don't have to keep in, including and extending. And I think there's way more blame, as it were, on the side of the model of the bourgeois family. Where, mm-hmm. oh, now it's me and my children, you know, and I'm, we're raising mm-hmm. our kids. And I, I get that that takes up a lot of time and energy. But you will raise your kids better if you are a kid raiser. <laughs> if you actually extend your household, like it'll be better for the kids. It'll be better for you. It'll be better for your friends who may not have children of their own or may be at other stages of life. And it's it's equally more. It's more the fault. Uh, and the point isn't really fault. It's, we've all been seduced into this idea that mm-hmm. and, and it's it's also what happens is like you get more money and you move to a bigger house with bigger bedrooms for each individual and each kid gets mm-hmm. their own bedroom. And that's not actually good for children or adolescents. Mm-hmm. It, um, and it's only we Americans with tons of space and money who think like that, that that we actually want to move into C.S. Lewis's version of hell, which is like this ever expanding <laughs> suburb where you can live yeah. farther and farther apart yeah. and into a bigger <laughs> and bigger house. Like bigger houses are not better for people. People need right. prox- we yeah. need proximity. And if you have a big house, you should fill it with people, including people who are not your biological kin. Yeah. So, I, you know, yeah. Does that make sense? I think a lot. Yes. And I think a lot, too, about the church right now. Um, and, mm. you know, the fact that the fact is more people are single. Um, they're single longer. Um, yeah. People are living longer. So they're often outliving spouses. Yep. Exactly. Um, and. Like the church is going to have to sort of deal with the reality of a lot more single people and has built itself around sort of the nuclear family. So I think it's a real challenge to the church, too, of like, how do you become maybe even the facilitator of these kinds of larger households? In some ways, it's the most important chapter in the book. Like, you know, we the book allegedly is about personhood and technology. But the one I want people to dwell on the most in some ways, at least, is is the household chapter. I just think it's it's essential to curing us, <laughs> curing what ails us in, in the Western world. Thank you so much, Andy. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Oh, man, it is such a joy to do this with you guys. So one of my favorite things about Andy is how it's like you can be talking about this one sort of seemingly small idea, and then suddenly you're like, and this is how humans can flourish. <laughs> and it's like it just gets so like deep so fast with him. Yes, he has definitely 
helped to germinate a lot of my deepest thoughts about what it means to be a human. So I wanted to come back to our um, memories that we discussed before Andy came on and kind of reflect on them through this lens that he brought up for us, that what it really means to be fully human is to be engaged in heart, body, strength, mind, and soul. Yes, I think it was, I think it's really clear that what Andy is driving home is not that digital technology is always and everywhere bad. Right. But that something about the way that we're currently using it is overall limiting our flourishing rather than enhancing it. But the FaceTime mm-hmm. with my nephew is a good example of the ways that it can enhance a previously existing embodied relationship from a distance rather than replace it, right? Like no one right. in our family wants to just continue to interact via FaceTime, right. but especially in the last two years, having the chance to see my nephew's face and hear his voice and He's really into like T-Rex sounds right now, which is really cute. Oh. Like that, that is a form of connection and yeah, it's real. And it's keeping you engaged in even like the stages where you're like, oh, I actually got to like experience the T-Rex stage, which you wouldn't have, you know, necessarily otherwise. Yeah. And every week there's like a new, he's just mm-hmm. at a stage where he's now doing, he's now saying this, he's now making this cute little comment. He's been, so he's in a T-Rex stage right now, but in that way, technology didn't impede on the schema of flourishing heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that when we look at, you know, our happiest memories from the last two weeks, arguably all of them are engaging all Mm -hmm. of the components of what it means to be a human made in God's image in a full capacity. Like it's very striking to me that both of us mentioned exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is not, of course it's engaging the body, but it's also engaging your emotions. Like, Oh crap. Can I really do this? Do I really have what's, do I have it in me to mm-hmm. obviously worship is from a Christian perspective, the most central expression of what it means to engage all those parts of ourselves. One thing that definitely struck me about our memories collectively, but also several, you know, I just was like looking back at my list and like all of them, but one for me were like with people. And I think even as I Mm -hmm. was, had been describing them, they were, there was something about each of them that made me feel like I belonged. Like I was part of a community and that was something that I think was maybe one of my biggest takeaways from the conversation with Andy was like how essential that is and how deprived of that we've been because of the Mm -hmm. pandemic, but also because we lived alone during the pandemic. And I think I feel particularly challenged in that way to like, I need these moments of connection and community more often and they give me such life, but it's hard to cultivate those when you live alone in a in an apartment in a city. Which is why Andy encouraged me to move to the Upper West Side. But maybe not with you all the time. <laughs> I would like to see you more often in person, Caitlin. I think the last time I saw you was two months ago at brunch. It was brunch, yeah. We do have another brunch coming up. We do. We do, <laughs> which is... Very good. And we're going to, and we're going to do open air yoga beforehand. Mm -hmm. So it's, we're going to be using heart, body, strength, mind, and soul that day. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. 
We should let Andy know. Like, we did it. <laughs> we'll send him a selfie. <laughs> Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.